Iran, a genuine partner for peace and cooperation, or the world's greatest threat to peace? First Jeremy Corbyn, and then Colonel Richard Kemp. The inclusivity, the tolerance, and the acceptance of other faiths, other traditions, and other ethnic groupings within Iran. Most people in the West simply do not understand. We need to have a uh, much more significant understanding of the history of Iran and Britain's relations with Iran if we're to bring about a new chapter in relations that I hope are going to bring about peace. The raising threat from Iran, the greatest threat I believe the world faces today, the threat from Russia in the east, the threat from China, and of course the perpetual threat of Sunni Islamic terrorism. Welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Colonel Richard Kemp, counter-terrorism expert, best-selling author, former commander of British forces in Afghanistan, a military career spanning three decades in Northern Ireland, Bosnia, Iraq and Afghanistan. He says he joined the army at 18 to fight and his pugnacious instincts haven't mellowed in military retirement. He remains a combative opponent of what he describes as evil something he says he's frequently witnessed firsthand and which he takes personally. Richard gave me such a generous amount of his time when I visited him in Colchester, where he was educated in the grammar school. Growing up just a few miles down the road, he still lives in Essex to this day. Colchester, England's oldest town, is a well-known garrison, and the first thing I saw arriving at the station was a dramatic multi-storey aqueduct of the kind that you see on the Via Appia Nuova in Rome. It's a truly English town with a continuous history, prosperous, with buildings of literally every century in view, including a synagogue built around 90 families. Jewish life in Colchester can be traced back to the Middle Ages. The earliest record came over 800 years ago when someone called Benedict of Norwich paid an almighty fine, £40, for selling goods without licence to, among others, Aaron, Isaac and Abraham of Colchester. Richard says rather than retiring into the distance, he's become more involved in supporting Israel in the numerous organisations he represents and standing square, he says, against anti-Israel bias in British society, he's been accused of being Jewish on the telly, although he realises to receive anti-Semitism isn't quite the same as being on the receiving end if one is actually Jewish. Israel and the IDF have been subjected to the worst slur campaign in the history of our, 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 our universe. Never has there been such a huge and damning slur campaign directed against any country or indeed any group of individuals. And, and within that slur campaign, a very important part of it is the allegations against the IDF of their war crimes, genocide even, crimes against humanity. And what I know as a former professional soldier who can look at these things with a professional eye and objectively, is that it's not just wrong and false, it's also the diametric opposite of the truth. I promise you a thoughtful, lucid and considered episode, a briefing of current affairs based on the last 30 to 100 years of history from one of the most important voices to emerge from the British military 
in decades. Colonel Richard Kemp, counter-terrorism expert, best-selling author, former commander of British forces in Afghanistan. It is a real privilege to sit down with you today and thank you for inviting me here to Colchester. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for coming. A military career spanning three decades, Northern Ireland, Bosnia, the 91 Gulf War in Iraq, Afghanistan. How does all of that feel in retirement now in the context of how the world's moved on today? Well, it's um, for me, my career, my army career of 30 years was quite eventful. I, I pretty much managed to get to every combat zone that the army was fighting in over that period of time, with one exception, which was the Falklands. Tried hard as I might to go there, I, I failed to, uh, to make the journey. But, it, yeah, I mean, I joined the army to fight. I didn't join the army to sit behind a desk or to stick stamps in an album. I joined the army to fight. Um, and I ended up spending much of my time involved in fighting. It evolved during my career, starting off with a, um, a tour in Northern Ireland, commanding a platoon when I was 18 years of age in Belfast, at a time when the Troubles were actually pretty active still, back in 1979, when the British Army was pretty much in control of what was happening. We were do- going through a transition period of handing over to the police. And there were bombings and shootings every day, pretty much, at least one a day, sometimes more. Uh, and quite a few soldiers getting wounded. And then I, my, my career transitioned through a number of tours in Ireland, total of eight, ending in one in 2000, when I was commanding an infantry battalion in Londonderry, at a time of after the peace process had gone through. But we still had some incidents, such as um, uh, dissident terrorist attacks and a great deal of public disorder, riot control. And then from there we went into, pretty much went into the war on terror and most of my career was after that was involved in fighting against the war on terror although I have to say it was mainly from behind a desk in Whitehall where I was working for the Joint Intelligence Committee on uh, countering Islamic terrorism. I did spend six months in Afghanistan in 2003 in Kabul but the, essentially the my, you know the other thing I'd mentioned I, I spent I did I took part in really one proper conventional conflict which was the first Gulf War back in 1991 when I was I took part in the invasion of Iraq in a Challenger tank and I think what I what I'd say is you know my my career has kind of reflected a transition from the British Army being focused overall in two places Germany defending against a potential Russian invasion and Northern Ireland and transition from that into pretty much what we've got today which is the British Army focused mainly on countering Islamic terrorism in many different places around the globe. Today, not deployed in the kind of strength that we were in Afghanistan and Iraq at its height, but nevertheless, small groups of people in different countries, in Africa, the Middle East and other places, helping to train and, uh, and helping to uh, enable local forces there to deal with this problem. Um, as well as numerous other things like drug counter drugs, etc. Mm-hmm. So a period of very, you know, a, a period of enormous change, a hugely large drawdown of the army, um, but nevertheless a time when, you know, I think the British Army was very much needed back when I joined in the seventies. It's still needed today, and we see the raising threat from Iran, the greatest threat I believe the world faces today, the threat from Russia in the east, the threat from China, which neither of which have materialised as I believe they will in due course. And of course the perpetual threat of Sunni Islamic terrorism. 
So the commander of the British forces in Afghanistan in 2003, was this tour the culmination of your military experience? I mean, you gave up an office job at the time in very senior government to serve there for six months. Was that the highlight, all the experience on site of your 30 years before? I had many, many highlights in my career. Um, And I would certainly at any time give up an office job to go and take part (laughs) in a a, a military operation. The, the great beauty of that job was really two things. First of all, I was there almost at the beginning of the, our campaign in Afghanistan. Not at the very beginning, but not far off. And so we were making it up as we went along, whereas most military operations you join maybe after they've been going on a few years. And so you follow rules and procedures laid down, whereas in this case I had to make it all up, which was fantastic. I could make the rules for what I was doing. And secondly... My commander was about 5,000 miles away in, um, in Buckinghamshire, and communications weren't always great, so it gave me a great deal of freedom of action as well, which is what every commander, I think, wants. Now, I asked this question of Colonel Bob Stewart on the radio uh, a couple of years ago. As a man of war, I asked him, how has that affected your view of humanity, both positively and negatively? I was trying to draw a line with me in the studio. I've never been to war, you know. I was not equipped to do it. I would love to serve my country in some way, but it won't be as an 18-year-old uh, with a gun, uh, with training. You know, What's your view of humanity negatively and positively now in retirement, having been that person? Well, I, I would say two things, really. One, that you see the depths of evil. And I, I've seen the depths of evil in a number of different places, including in Northern Ireland, uh, in Afghanistan, in Iraq. And, and it, it's a bit different when you experience it, witness it, and talk to evil people yourself rather than just watch it on television. So I think it gives you a great insight, and it, if anything, it sort of gives you, and certainly gave me, and gives me today, greater Im- impetus and motivation to do anything I possibly can to counter that evil. Um, because it does, in some ways, it does become personal. And, and secondly... I think I gained a huge insight into the, the the quality and the strengths of human character. And that was both mainly, I would say, among the soldiers I commanded and fought alongside in different places, who were the most incredible people, many of them just 18, 19-year-old kids, who do the most amazing things that people who haven't seen it couldn't really imagine, of heroism, dedication, going well beyond what could be expected of them in normal circumstances. Comradeship as well, and, and the strength of brotherhood and comradeship. Uh, but also in among some of the members of civilian populations that, uh, that we've operated in, where you know, themselves who are faced with the utmost evil and yet managed to stay optimistic, constructive, resilient and wanting to fight back. That's a wonderful answer, thank you. Have you, like Colonel Bob, ever been tempted by a career in politics? Clearly, you have very distinct views. He became a Tory MP. <laughs> what about you, Richard? Uh, no, I, I'd rather... Um, well, I wouldn't say I'd rather do than become a Tory MP, but um, <laughs> I, 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 t- to be honest, no. I've had a lot of dealings with members of the Parliament and other politicians, and I have a great respect for very many of them. I'm not one of these people that has contempt for politicians. I, I know that most of them enter politics to do something good with, in the world. Um, and many of them are frustrated in their inability to actually make change. 
But no, it hasn't really interested me. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is because I spent my entire life institutionalised in school and in the army. And I didn't really want to go into another, another kind of constraining institution in which I would be part of a hierarchy. Okay, you can be an independent, but you achieve nothing as an independent, I don't think very rarely do. So I, I wanted to be my own man, and I wanted to, um, to operate without a hierarchy above me, um, so I could make my own decisions, call my own shots. Now, you have spoken out very clearly, as I have actually, on Sky News about the Afghan interpreters who sought British citizenship and also what you call the malicious and disruptive investigation and prosecution of British soldiers for suspected criminal acts in Afghanistan and Iraq and as well as the opening of new investigations historically relating to actions of British soldiers many decades ago in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. Where does this come from in British politics? It must make your blood boil. It's a very, very dangerous phenomenon and... I, th- I, th- I think I'm right in saying that never before in history has any government abused its armed forces in the way that successive British governments have over both Iraq, Afghanistan and Northern Ireland. I don't mean by that sending them into fight because I believe they should have been sent into fight in all three of those cases. What I mean by that is that they have the government has willingly and arguably even enthusiastically encouraged the prosecutions, the extensive investigations on spurious allegations and the prosecutions of British soldiers when they should not have been. Obviously, if a British soldier clearly breaks the law, obviously that soldier has to be brought to justice for it and if necessary in prison for it. And I would not argue against that in any circumstances. But um, there are two real issues. First of all, the most of the allegations against soldiers from Iraq and Afghanistan have proved to be entirely spurious and you could see that right from the very beginning. In my opinion the British government was intent on making examples of these people not because they'd broken the law but because they wanted to show government even-handedness as between dealing harshly with Islamic terrorists and dealing harshly with their own people. And it was completely wrong. Yes, if they broke the law, they should be dealt with harshly. But these guys had not broken the law. So, so it's, it, what it's all about is appeasement of supporters of Islamic terrorists in this country and overseas. And the same applies in relation to Northern Ireland. Sinn Féin, the IRA, which is basically a single organisation, is trying to rewrite history. It's trying to rewrite history to portray its terrorists as peacemakers and liberators and freedom fighters and security forces as oppressors, the direct opposite of the reality. And one way they can effectively do that is get soldiers into the dock. And that's what they're desperate to do. The government knows that, yet the government goes along with it in order to appease them. Um, So it's all about appeasement in both the Middle East, Asia and in Northern Ireland. And the second issue is that, and we've seen it, for example, with Marine A, Sergeant Al Blackman, who was convicted of murder and imprisoned before his appeal, which then saw him released. For whatever reason, there appears to be no serious action or, or you know, no serious account taken of the circumstances under which soldiers are fighting. 
Now, it, there is a com- very big difference between a soldier killing somebody who they shouldn't kill and a civilian going out with a knife in South London and sticking it in somebody who owes them money for drugs. That The two things are very different. If a soldier is obviously doing it deliberately and intentionally in order to murder somebody, that is the same thing. But people like our black men were not doing it in that way. They were doing it under enormous stress and pressure of battle. And it should be looked at as a different thing, which this, the Court of Appeal eventually found it was. And we have a genuine threat inside our own political system because we have a Labour Party who emboldened terror, who emboldened the IRA. What if they're elected? The whole of society is thrown upside down. I think the Labour Party is probably the most dangerous political party, serious political party this country has seen for many years, perhaps ever. Because their leader, Jeremy Corbyn, is, um, is motivated overall by one thing, which is hatred of the United States of America. That, in turn, motivates his hatred of Israel and his hatred of the UK. The history and traditions of Islam, the inclusivity, the tolerance and the acceptance of other faiths, other traditions and other ethnic groupings within Iran. And I think that's something that most people in the West simply do not understand. And um, my point is that we need to have a uh, much more significant understanding of the history of Iran and Britain's relations with Iran if we're to bring about a new chapter in relations that I hope are going to bring about peace. But it's overall his hatred of the USA. And the USA, of course, as is Israel, are very strong allies of ours. They're extremely important business partners. We need them. What we don't need is a Prime Minister who uh, takes office and immediately destroys decades and in some cases hundreds of years of relationships with our partners and that's exactly what Corbyn would do he 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 has consistently endorsed everything anti-british he supported the IRA he invited IRA terrorists into the house of commons shortly after the IRA blew up the british cabinet in brighton he has described hezbollah and hamas as his friends he's been to lay wreaths on the grave of terrorists that were involved in the murder of Israeli athletes I'm certain on day one of his prime ministership should it ever come to that, which heaven forbid it won't that he would recognise the state of Palestine Israel would then withdraw its ambassador from the UK that would see the beginning of a breakdown of relations between Britain and Israel which is, is morally unacceptable from my point of view, Israel, we owe a huge amount to Israel we have huge responsibility for Israel. They should be our close friends. But also, from a selfish point of view, depriving us of the connection with Israel is going to endanger our citizens because the Israeli intelligence and military organizations do a huge amount to support this country, including preventing terrorist acts in the UK. You're listening to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. If you like my regular podcasts, please think about making a donation. My podcasts are free, and I want to keep them free, and so donations really help me keep them that way. Head over to my donations page at www.patreon.com slash Johnny Gould. 
And we'll talk about Israel in just a moment, but it also threatens the Britishness of every Jew who lives here to be presented with a politician who is less patriotic in British terms than me is a shock. And it means that um, as someone who grew up here is socialised in Britishness, I get all the jokes about rain, but I'm from Birmingham. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. No, it's all good. It's all good. It's the new. It's the new culture, so, from what I understand. Um, but, I, but but what I'm trying, what I'm saying is here. That, you know, where does it where does it leave? Where does it leave my patriotism? I'm really proud to be British, and I, I mean, he he doesn't get irony, does he? Even though he's lived here all his life, where, where does it leave me? Well, and my friends. I think I think to sort of, and I think you did vaguely suggest that as as a Jew. You were surprisingly patriotic. No, no, no. I, I I'm surprisingly no. I'm I'm patriotic. Very. Yeah. What I'm saying is I'm more patriotic than him. Yeah, well, that, that's, and, that's what I'm that, saying. And that wouldn't surprise me. I suspect that. I mean, most Jews I've met in this country are far more patriotic than most non-Jews right. in this country. Yes. And if you you know you just t- you just take for example in a synagogue on a Friday uh, there are prayers for the Queen and there are prayers for Absolutely. the armed forces. Now. <laughs> I don't know. I very much doubt you'll find either of those in the Church of England. Do you know what? (laughs) I went to a Sunday night service just because I was interested at the end of Sabbath. And it was a Church of England church, um, I presumed, an establishment place. And the priest, uh, the vicar, was at the altar and he said, uh, you know, Lord, uh, thank you very much for allowing us to convene uh, in this house of worship, uh, we don't take our, you know, freedom to practice for granted, and we thank you, Lord, for providing us with a tolerant nation to do it in. And I'm thinking, hang on, this is a, this is a, this is not, this is not. I'm not in a shul, am I? <laughs> this is this, and I went up to the priest and I said, I am utterly shocked. Are you is this a ra- is this a railing against secularism? And they genuinely feel constrained and under threat as well. Yeah. And that really, I, I couldn't believe it. That, 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 that knocked my block off as well. Well, of course, the, the world today, certainly Europe, and to a lesser extent America, I think, has, has turned against um, religion, particularly Christianity and Judaism. But to, go, to answer your question about the effect on the Jewish community here of a Jeremy Corbyn prime ministership... I think it would be unthinkable for him to be elected and I think anybody who votes for him has got to be really looked at as to to their their real intent. Um, I I find anything anything that makes the Jewish community here uncomfortable even to me is an aberration, is is an abhorrence, shall I say. And, And, you know, we don't have to have as a reason for that the, the, the ghastly things that happened in the Holocaust and various other attacks on the Jewish race um, if I can call them a Jewish race but the Jewish people anyway but, but even all that aside the, the incredible amount that Jewish people have contributed and continue to contribute to this country in so many different ways is it's, it's, in many ways like the state of Israel the state of Israel is a tiny little country that contributes an immeasurable amount to the whole of the world in technology, science, innovation, um, business, and, and numerous other yeah. numerous other areas. And there's tiny Jewish community in this country as well. 
makes, I would say, at least an equal contribution in this country to the, the Jewish state in the world. And just one example of that, and it goes back a few years now, but it's only one of many, is, is the contribution that Dr. Weizmann, the, who was, I think, at the time head of the Jewish agency and went on to be president of Israel, made to winning the First World War. He developed a means of, uh, of producing uh, explosives, which... Uh, had not, which was not in, within our capabilities at the time. He produced it, he invented it, or his company did. And it, it very much helped us to win the First World War. This one example of many. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say right back at you, because without a Britain of universal values, of the evolution of its democracy, of its monarchy, Jews could never have properly functioned here. It is thanks to the maturity of British society that the Jews have been able to contribute. So that is a thank you as well. It's a two-way street. And hopefully uh, we are not about to see an end to it. I think, I think one thing I would add is that, yes, yes, we owe a lot to Israel and we owe a lot to the Jews here. But also we were extremely important in the recreation of the State of Israel in 1948. First of all, the Balfour Declaration in 1917, which was, contrary to what many people think, was not a, a sort of unilateral British imperialist decision. It was a decision that was agreed in advance by the most important countries in the world who we weren't fighting, including the United States of America, um, China and Russia. Although we then reneged on the Balfour Declaration, of course, in subsequent years in the leading up to the Second World War, which was to our embarrassment or to our shame. Uh, and, and also, the other thing that people often don't consider is that the British armed forces and the British Empire armed forces fought extremely bloody battles in Palestine um, in 1916, 1917, 1918 to rid the land of the Turks, of the Ottoman Empire, not just Palestine, but other countries around it. And a lot of British blood was spilt doing that. And had, had we not done it, had we not got rid of them out of um, that land, then there's no reason at all to believe they wouldn't still be there now. And if they were still there now, there wouldn't be a Jewish state. So, you know, I think that's an important thing to remember. And Bearing in mind also, just as a side note, that there was a significant Jewish military force that took part in that fighting, the Jewish Legion, uh, made up of Jews from the United Kingdom, the United States, Russia, from Palestine itself, etc. But the, the other the sort of downside I'd add to that is that um, we, we then, after having done all that, we then betrayed the Jewish people by reneging, as I said, on the Balfour Declaration, physically preventing... Jews from entering Palestine at the time of the Holocaust, when above all they needed somewhere to escape to, and in my opinion, we would have we we had we not adopted that policy, which was pressurised on us by the Arabs, we would have probably saved the lives of at least a million or so Jewish people who died in the Holocaust. Richard's observations tally with those of another guest of Johnny Gould's Jewish State, Lord Leslie Turnberg. Download that episode if you've not heard it yet. Leslie is the author of Beyond the Balfour Declaration, 
the 100-year quest for Israeli-Palestinian peace, and he joined me to discuss Balfour and the formation of the State of Israel. Zionism evolved with a number of major figures, Herzling especially. But I believe that the Balfour Declaration was important, the Holocaust was important, Weizmann was important, but equally important, I believe, was the mandate period in the 1920s and 30s. That was the time when the state could have been lost completely. The Jews were outnumbered 10 to 1 by the Arabs, who were belligerent and wanted to get rid of them. The British government was beginning to backslide. It was beginning to have regrets that it had got involved in this turmoil in the Middle East. It was uh, having votes in Parliament trying to stop the Balfour Declaration. That was before the League of Nations approved it. And even afterwards, they were putting a ban on immigration. They were putting a ban on land purchase. And yet, and yet, there were giants during that time who ensured that the state idea continued. And in British government, they were fortunate to have a Churchill uh, who uh, promoted the cause. My family on my mother's side was saved by Britain. Uh, my grandparents arrived uh, in Britain. They didn't know each other before they arrived here. They met at a friendship club in Birmingham, and they both came from Vienna in Austria. Uh, my grandma arrived in September 1938, and my grandfather arrived in April 1939 uh, because he was a strong young man and could work at Kitchener Camp in Sandwich. So he's one of those 4,000 men from Berlin and Vienna. Another amazing, amazing story of how... Uh, the best of Britain enabled them to settle down, to meet, to marry, to have children, to have a business, Absolutely. and actually seem to sort it out by about 1955. Mm. It's just, it really is an inspiration to me that they rebuilt their lives. Actually, not they weren't that young. You know, they were in their 40s. Not that easy. Now, you are well known for your unwavering support, because I think that's what I was trying to think of a word to describe it. It is unwavering. For many years, for the Israel Defense Forces, the most moral army in the world. That's a big shout. What does, what does that mean in practical terms, Richard? Well, I think the uh, first thing to say is that um, the Israel and the IDF have been subjected to the, the worst slur campaign in the history of our, 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 our universe. Never has there been such a huge and damning slur campaign directed against any country or indeed any group of individuals. Um, obviously started by the Arabs and, and taken up in Europe and the United States of America and elsewhere against um, the Jewish state. And, and within that slur campaign, a very important part of it is the allegations against the IDF of their war crimes, genocide even, crimes against humanity. And... What I know as a former professional soldier who can look at these things with a professional eye and objectively is that it's not just wrong and false, it's also the diametric opposite of the truth. Mm -hmm. The reality is there is no other army in the world that pays more 
attention and takes more care and makes more effort to save the lives of innocent civilians on the battlefield while remaining an effective fighting force than the IDF. And I've seen this with my own eyes. I've seen it in Gaza. I've seen it on the border of Gaza in the recent, um, the recent that's been going on now more than a year, the riots on the border and the, and the containment of those riots. It, so, so it's not it's not just really, really false to, to accuse them of that. It's also totally and utterly 180 degrees in the wrong direction. And I, I would ascribe their, um, their the, the, the highest level of their morality, the IDF, to two things. Um, <clears throat> the first, compared to other armies, and, and the British Army, of course, is also highly moral, but as is the US Army, and they also take huge care. But I think the idea of probably go beyond that because, and for these reasons, one, because um, every every, um, person who joins the army in Britain and in the US and most other Western volunteer armies join pretty much because they want, like me, they want to fight. You wouldn't join the army if you didn't want to fight. Okay, there are technical cause, etc., but for the fighting troops, you want to fight, you want to be involved in the fighting, and that makes you uh, gung-ho. It makes you aggressive, it makes you, um, you know, determined to get in among the enemy. If you join the IDF, there are very few who do that, a very small number. The vast majority join, one, because they have a legal requirement to do so, and two, because they know they need to defend their country against a, a threat on their doorstep. And what they want to do, most of them, they want to be bricklayers or they want to be road builders, or they want to be computer experts, software writers, engineers, doctors, whatever, whatever they, everyone wants to do. That's what they want to do. So they're not as gung-ho. They're not as aggressive. They're not as dedicated to the kind of military life as, as most professional soldiers are. Now, that is not to in any way question their aggression as an armed force and their effectiveness because it isn't but it does give a different a different um, puts a different type of person in the armed forces and the second reason is the religion of Judaism now I know and you know that I think I'm right in saying that the the practicing Jews are in the minority in Israel but nevertheless Judaism has a strong and direct influence throughout Israeli society, yes. including in the IDF, in a way that, it, that our religion here does not have in Britain any longer. Once it would have done. Today it doesn't. And I think those two factors um, mean that, that the IDF has, I would say, supreme levels of morality when it comes to um, particularly looking after civilians on the battlefield. Culturally and religiously, as you, uh, as you put it, and indeed maybe the most important word in uh, the name of the Israeli army is defence. It is defence of land. It is not aggression. It is about defending one's land and even one's own family uh, because they literally don't have room to mess up. Um, I just wanted to ask um, this year, earlier this year, you had joined a, a protest rally for equal rights at the United Nations, at the Place des Nations, uh, Geneva, Switzerland, led by Hillel Neuer's UN Watch against anti-Israel bias. How has the UN come to this? 
I've spoken at the United Nations Human Rights Council in their plenary sessions on four separate occasions now. The first one being in connection with their Goldstone report back in, I think it was 2009 or thereabouts. And um, what I've found there has been horrifying. When I've been at the United Nations, in between various stages of the debates, I've been around and spoken to various ambassadors from different countries um, informally. And when I've heard some of the lies, downright lies and ignorance that's been spewed out by them about Israel, I've asked them what they meant by it. And in every single case, none of them could back it up. It's just a national, in, in, in many cases, a national desire to abuse Israel. And that's in some cases caused by malign intent, in some cases by ignorance. But it's not, there's, there's, no, there's no reason or rhyme behind any of it. In March 2019, Richard joined a rally and spoke outside the UN headquarters in Geneva, protesting for equal rights and against anti-Israel bias, organised by UN Watch Executive Director Hilal Noya. We are here today to demand what the United Nations Charter promised In 1945, when the United Nations was created, the UN promised equal rights for all men and women and equal rights for all nations, large and small. But when we come here to the United Nations, when we stand here at the Human Rights Council, and I was just there this morning, we see something that is not consistent with this promise. We look for equal rights, but we see a Human Rights Council that is supposed to speak for victims of the world's worst violations, but instead there were zero on Algeria, zero on China, zero on Iraq, zero on Pakistan, zero on Qatar, zero on Russia, zero on Turkey, zero on Venezuela, zero on Zimbabwe. We see that the whole world, the whole world was addressed last week. Today, Israel alone is criticized for an entire day, the only country in the world that is the focus of its own day, its own debate, its own agenda item. Not North Korea, not Syria, not Sudan is treated in this way. And so we're here today not to say that Israel is perfect, it can be criticized, but to say that what is happening here at the United Nations is discrimination. It is inequality. It is a violation of the UN Charter. It's a violation of what the Human Rights Council promised. So all we're asking here is to ask the United Nations to live up to its own promises. And we're here to say enough is enough. We're demanding equal rights and nothing more and nothing less. So the UN actually can never be reformed. I think it is. It's just a sort of plebiscite of anti-Semitism. Something like the UN Human Rights Council uh, and other UN bodies like UNESCO, etc., which have representation from countries that are diametrically opposed to the state of Israel's existence and other countries which just automatically support them, mean that you'll never get that changed. Um, And I I can't see a way of changing it, even though the... um, you know, the, of course, the Arab world have been the main anti-Israel aggressors for, since the creation of the State of Israel and before. But today, um, many countries in the Arab world, including Saudi Arabia, Oman, um, 
the UAE and other countries, Egypt and Syria, of course, Egypt and Jordan, of course, um, are now, whether they admit it or not, very, very closely aligned with Israel, cooperate with Israel, gain a huge amount from their cooperation with Israel for their own security and defense as well as their own economies. But even despite that, and, and, and actually, incidentally, that is not something they haven't just fallen in love with Israel. It's a tactical realignment because they see it as being in their interests. But even with that, we, 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 we will not see any change to the UN Human Rights Council. Now, indeed, that IDF advantage that you mentioned there, if I can call it that, because it's also a regrettable one, is regular combat experience. Cooperation with the RAF was on that very basis as we shared the same fighter jets, but Israel has used them in actual defense, in combat. And you've tapped into the IDF's experience yourself over many years. Defense against suicide bombs, I remember a conversation that you had that I was witness to, that you hurriedly wrote down British Army policy, how to deal with suicide bombing, when you met a senior Israeli general in a hotel lobby, thought, I better write this down, this is going to be uh, the draft that I'm going to uh, release for, 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 my, uh, for my army. Well, not only did I hurriedly write it down, and not only did I meet him in a hotel lobby, but I met him in a hotel lobby because he was commanding a, a brigade in the Golan Heights at the time, and he was the man deemed by the IDF to be their number one expert on suicide bombing. And he flew to the UK specifically to meet me, to share his expertise at the request of the um, Israeli embassy in London, which was something he didn't need to do because they already had experts in London on this subject and they could have given me one of them. They were experts, but not as good an expert as he was. Yet, so they, they, they sent me their best. And, and that was, to me, was something that I will never forget. And it saved lives of many British soldiers. It's now pretty much in the original form is now still the British Army policy for countering suicide bomb attacks and has saved lives of many British soldiers and it's also NATO policy today so it's also saved lives of other soldiers within NATO thanks to the you know the, the IDF going out further than they needed to and on the exercise you mentioned in the UK the, the air exercise it was a historic event because it was the first time in history that Israeli Defence Force combat aircraft have deployed to the UK and exercised in the UK with UK and other Allied Air Forces. Which is a remarkable progress in the history of the State of Israel. Well, I, w I would say one thing, that the cooperation between the IDF and the British Armed Forces is extremely close and has been for quite a large number of years. It's not as prominent or as high profile as that between for example, the IDF in the US or Britain in the US, but it is nevertheless extremely close. The reason it's not, not kind of shouted about from the rooftops, as I believe it should be, is because of the political sensitivities. In other words, the weakness of politicians who are afraid to admit that they're cooperating with the IDF. Now, you are that man in the middle of the establishment coming up with outspoken, positive views and actions in and among uh, fellows who don't like what you do through this anti-Israel bias. <sighs> That's tiring, isn't it? 
or do you just think I know I'm right I'm ca- cracking on this, you, you're, you're in the heart of this I enjoy it <laughs> <laughs> horrible thing to say but I, I've been in, in the years that I've been involved since I left the army in publicly uh, speaking and commenting and writing about this subject I've been subjected to um, some very very nasty anti-Semitic abuse even though I'm not Jewish well, um, sorry but, about that <laughs> <laughs> You'd like me to be Jewish. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't say that lightly because I know that it's a very different thing to be subjected to anti-Semitism if you're not Jewish from being subjected to anti-Semitism if you are Jewish and having to live with that whole thing without any choice in the matter. And my, mine is through more through choice. But I do like the fact that I'm subjected to that abuse and I do like the fact that I was... To put the um, our intelligence services discovered my name on an Al Qaeda hit list a few years ago, which is something I'm actually quite proud of because, in the same way as the anti Semitism and the other hate I get, it shows me that I'm saying and doing the right thing because I'm enraging the people that need to be enraged. It's like that Churchill quote, you know, you ever made an enemy? <laughs> uh, you know, good, you know, that's why because you're doing the right thing. Have you ever? Sort of thought. Actually, this is extremely tiresome. Uh, I'm not Jewish. I don't have to do this. I mean, for me, as you say, this is my epicenter. And of course, there are self-hating Jews, people who don't like Israel, who within the Jewish community. Do you ever sort of think, actually, I'm retired now. I just intend to my garden in my home county of Essex and just enjoy life a bit more, rather than. Defending these crazy people a long way away. Well, certainly crazy people. I won't disagree <laughs> that. But um, actually, I mean, most most military and retired military people I know from the British forces have the same view as mine. Um, it's not unusual. It's not uncommon at all. And the, one of the main reasons they have that is because, yes, like the rest of the British population, they get their mind polluted by the media agenda against Israel, which is so common in this country, particularly the broadcast media. But they also have direct experience themselves of the kind of enemy that Israel is fighting. And so they understand and they admire and respect the IDF. I would say that the IDF is very, very high up on the list of um, respected armed forces for most British soldiers. But the reason you won't hear it very much is because most people have got more sense than I have. And they do want to go and live in their garden and and uh, live an easy and a quiet life and you can't blame them after a, a career of, of, of fighting in the army or serving in the army in my case I, I, as I mentioned I joined the army because I, I wanted to fight in my experience in the army I did encounter some very um, great depths of evil and I do have a, an incentive and a, a, a desire to counter that evil and I do see the, the anti-Israel Lobby and and worse, anti-Israel terrorists and extremists. I do see them as being an evil that needs to be countered, and also, I see the the state of Israel as being an entity that needs to be supported for for various reasons. I have and always have throughout my entire life admired the Jewish state and their armed forces. Even before I joined the army, I knew all about them. And I, I, I still admire to this day, and I admire the Jewish state and everything it's done in the most incredible adversity. The achievements they've made have been phenomenal. They have the same Western liberal democratic philosophy as we do, and it does need to be supported against all comers. 
But also, in addition to that, the IDF is fighting our fight. They are fighting at the spear point of the war that we are fighting against those people that want to destroy our society and our way of life. And even if it wasn't for all the other things, I would be as active as I possibly could be in fighting that fight with Israel as best I can to protect our own country and our own people. Which brings me on to the next proper noun, which is Iran, which is approximately what you may have been referring to there in that statement. It's fighting proxy wars wherever it can against Sunni targets and indeed through Hezbollah and Hamas against Israel. What do we do with Iran? What does President Trump do with Iran? Well, ever since the 1979 revolution, Iran has, um, and a, a key tenant of that revolution was opposition to the US, death to the, death to the United States, a key tenant of that re- revolution. Ever since then, it has been uh, effectively at war with the United States, an undeclared war, a war that has sometimes flared up into actual violence or intended violence, and sometimes into other things. And also it's been at war with the United States as allies, of course, including the United Kingdom and including Israel. And Israel has been its primary focus in the region uh, and, its, and its leaders have repeatedly declared the intention to annihilate the state of Israel. So what, one of the problems that we face today with Iran is that Barack Obama, the last president of the US, um, decided to appease Iran by concocting with them a so-called nuclear deal, which was portrayed as being something that would prevent an Iranian nuclear um, weapon system, but of course had the opposite effect of paving the way to an Iranian nuclear weapon system, and at the same time um, funded with billions of dollars, funded what is now Iranians, uh, Iran's aggression across the region. That had to be terminated. Both of those things had to be terminated. I'm happy to say President Trump pulled out of the JCPOA the nuclear deal. I'm more disappointed to say that Britain hasn't and European countries haven't, but I hope they will. I know Britain wants to, but Britain's, Britain's attitude to that is complicated by its current negotiation with the EU, which makes it difficult. For so Britain. we could do this after the 31st of October, then? <laughs> Arguably. We're going to do that, Richard? <laughs> Arguably. So um, the... the um, You say, what what should President Trump do? Well, I think he should do what he's doing now, which is to maintain and tighten sanctions, economic sanctions against Iran, attack it economically, and isolate it diplomatically, and do everything he can to try and encourage European countries to do the same, to join him. Because the reason we're seeing this aggression in the Middle East now, the reason we're seeing the the tanker attacks, the reason we're seeing the... um, the, the attack on Saudi Arabia's oil is all of that is aimed at one thing it's aimed at Europe it's intended to show Europe that there is a price to pay if they don't do both of the following two things one do not impose sanctions on Iran and two persuade the US to lift its sanctions use their pressure to on the US so that's what it's aimed at and all the while that Europe equivocates and appeases and doesn't Come, come down hard in Iran, we will see this aggression continue. Um, I also believe that there are military options that should be used against Iran. Maybe they have already been used against Iran because a lot of military operations these days 
an example set by Israel is that you do something but don't shout about it. So maybe that's already happened, but I certainly think it should be an option that President Trump and indeed the UK also use in the future. And another conflict is the Syrian civil war, which rages on with death and destruction just northeast of Israel. What threat to world peace is there in Syria and what threat to Israel is this? Or because actually the world doesn't seem to care much anymore. Is it just sort of, oh, just carry on, will you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's terrible, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, occasionally there's a glimmer of interest, but not very often. Yeah. And you can see, just as an example of the, of the imbalance in media coverage of various things related to the Middle East, you can see absolute media outrage and horror, wall-to-wall coverage, if people are killed on the border with Gaza by the IDF, a couple of people, yet thousands are being killed in Syria, and it's, as you say, ignored. So um, I think in terms of what it, what it represents, first of all, Iran, together with Russia, have ensured the survival of President Assad, for the time being anyway, and his regime will, I think, continue, and he will gain control of, he's already gained, regained control of quite a lot of Syria, will probably get, regain control of most of it. And, and that, of course, has given Russia a huge boost um, in its prestige, at home at least, and also in its ambitions for future similar adventures, because Russia, Putin, obviously has a desire to, to re-establish the glory of the Soviet Union in any way he can, and this is part of that. And secondly, it's given Iran an enormous boost, because Iran now has a foothold, in a, a bigger foothold than they had before in Syria, and is attempting to turn Syria effectively into a bridgehead in which it can attack Israel, um, with a land bridge being built from Iran through Iraq through Syria to the Israeli border, as well as the front that faces Israel in Lebanon. So, and, and, and so that those are the, those are two, three of the uh, effects I think of what we see. And and the, the third one is is the enormous refugee problem we have in Europe today, which has been created by that situation, which incidentally would have been a great deal worse a great deal worse if it wasn't for Israel, which has in effect prevented similar collapse in Jordan by its support for Jordan and also arguably in Egypt, which has prevented a further influx of massive number of destabilising refugees coming into, uh, into Europe. Richard, my first ever interview in the series was with Sergeant Benjamin Anthony and retired Brigadier General Amir Avivi about their new state solution to summarise the creation of a Palestinian state in Gaza and North Sinai with Judea and Samaria becoming Israel. Jerusalem's holy Muslim sites would remain under the auspices of Jordan's Hashemite kingdom, but there would be no forced repatriation or movement of populations. Richard, what do you think of the new state solution? Well, first thing I'd say is I think Benjamin Anthony is a fantastic man. He's a very good friend of mine. He's a great fighter, both in war and in the media and in the public opinion for the state of Israel. The new state solution, I think, like, like any, any proposed solution to the, the conflict between Israel and uh, the Palestinians, is worth considering seriously. I, I'm well aware of it. I've discussed it with him many times. And I think it's a, a genuinely viable option. I, I, however, have a degree of scepticism about whether we're ever going to see any solution to this situation. And the reason I say that is because I do not believe that the Palestinian leadership 
either in Gaza or in the West Bank, want peace. They don't want a solution. The only thing they want is the annihilation of the Jewish state. And while that remains their requirement and their priority, it's hard to see how any solution will prevail. But I certainly think that the new state solution is, as I say, worth considering. And if it was implemented even partially, could well, and there are other solutions that could do the same thing, could well kind of change the, um, the international agenda as far as Israel is concerned and maybe rebalance it um, against their cons- cons- constant condemnation of the Jewish state. Richard, one foot forward and the world's perspective changes. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for your time today, sir. Thank you. My pleasure.